is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. And I'm Rob Archer. In today for Charles Feldman, another mass shooting has rocked the country's parades. We're now seemingly no longer safe from this kind of violence. A parade honoring America on Independence Day in a quiet, affluent community north of Chicago stopped as a shooter fired into the crowd. Seven people are killed, another 30 or so hurt. The accused shooter now in custody. We go in-depth with the latest into the Highland Park Parade shooting rampage. WNBA star Brittany Griner now asking President Biden directly to help get her out of Russia, where she's been detained since February. And speaking of Russia, they are making gains in eastern Ukraine, but at what cost? We'll get into that. The recent COVID surge in California seems to keep going. No signs of it slowing down. That means indoor mask mandates uh, might come back in L.A. County. We'll look at what a recession might look like and if it'll really be that bad of one. People are heading to movie theaters again. Are they going to keep going once the summer blockbusters end? And scientists now linking wildfires to a mass extinction event millions of years ago. Are we in for a repeat of that We're going to start. We're going to start with the uh, parade shooting just north of Chicago. With us now is Zach Weber from WBBM News Radio in Chicago. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. So before we uh, get into this, where do we stand uh, with the latest absolutely up-to-date information? Yeah, hey, good afternoon, guys. Thanks for having me on. Um, so right now we are standing by for the latest news conference update from police where we are expecting them to announce charges Um we had a news conference around 11.30 our time earlier today, and they described a bunch of details about the suspect himself, and we are kind of holding our breath, waiting for charges in, and now it looks like we're going to be getting those soon here in the next 10 minutes or so. Um, they've also provided a lot of new details today that we hadn't really heard uh, up until now. Um, initially, uh, they had said the gunman was 22 years old. They amended that, and now he's 21. They've corrected that date. And um, in terms of the actual shooting, um, so they believe now that the individual who uh, carried out this attack, and they have named him, um, this individual was dressed as a woman, actually, and used this as a disguise. This suspect has pretty distinct facial and neck tattoos, and so the investigators believe this individual dressed up as a woman climbed up a ladder in an alley along the parade route, got on top of the roof, and then started shooting from up there with what they were referring to as a, 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 a military-style rifle. And I think another one of the uh, spokesmen actually used the term AR-15-style rifle, but a high-powered rifle ends up firing off around 70 rounds from on top of this rooftop and then climbs down, and police believe that with this disguise he's wearing, is able to sort of blend into the crowd um, amidst all this chaos and people running everywhere. And... And amidst all of that craziness, the suspect is able to get away. And so what happens is that this individual then walks to his mom's house, his mother's house, who lives nearby, borrows her vehicle, and then takes off. And at this point, a police chase eventually happens, and he's eventually taken into custody and arrested um, along a, a street that's in the area, north suburbs here in Chicago. Okay, so 21 years old, legally purchased the, the rifles, and I guess they found, what, even more pistols at his home? Correct. Yes, they they did say that the the gun used in the shooting appears to be legally purchased in the Chicago area, and then when the individual uh, the suspect was stopped um, and was taken into custody, police said they found another rifle in the vehicle that was his mom's vehicle, and they also found some pistols at his home where he lived with his dad and uncle. 
And they have said that there's no indication the mom had any idea of what was going on at this point. But, um, yeah, apparently he went there, and she had no idea, and he played it cool and then took off. So that's what they're saying so far. And, you know, along with the vehicle that he was in, police said that they had a lot of help from the ATF. And what they did was this, this, this guy, Robert Cremo, who is the, the person who they've named as the suspect, um, he apparently left the gun there that he used in the shooting. So they picked this up, were able to sort of do some gun tracing on it, came back with his name, flagged him, and they were able to sort of piece together things from there. I wanted to ask you about, uh, you know, you bring up uh, the family. I know that some family members they talked to said that we had no idea that, uh, you know, he was planning anything like this. But but now authorities release information. You know, he's got a digital footprint, uh, a lot of violent uh, imagery and rhetoric, and uh, that he had been planning this for some weeks now. Where did they get that idea, and, and how could the family not be aware of this if he had been posting this kind of stuff for so long? Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think there was, I mean... It, it, it's it's sort of an unfortunate, but the uncle actually referred to the individual, said that he was like a weird dude or something, which is kind of an unusual description from a family member. But yeah, so they spent a lot of time on the internet. But but the investigators didn't necessarily say that there was this sort of peripheral hate, um, you know, fueled. Uh, this, they didn't really characterize it in the same way that they talked about other ones like Buffalo and other places recently, because there was some concern. This neighborhood and in the area, really in general, has a very high Jewish population, and so there was some thought that maybe he had targeted these individuals or the community itself. But police so far have said they have no indication that you know this was a, a hate-fueled attack, and they haven't really even pinned down a motive at this point. But as you suggested, this 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 guy, this boy, his name's uh, Bobby Cremo, I guess Robert Cremo the third. He's sometimes referred to as Bobby Cremo. Um, he had a, a pretty, um, I don't want to say well established, but people were aware of a Spotify page he had, and as well as a YouTube page where he posted rap videos and stuff. And he had you know pretty distinct facial tattoos, as I mentioned, which is part of the reason police believed he had tried to disguise himself. And one of the tattoos on his face had actually said awake or awaken. And that's that's what one of his rap names. And so there's all these these sort of side angles that police are exploring and investigating now. Unfortunately, um, you know, they've they're those all those pages are taken down at this point. They went down pretty fast. And so we'll see what comes out of the investigations. But at this point, um, sort of his digital footprint is slowly disappearing. So we'll see. It's mostly what we're hearing is eyewitness accounts and family members sort of speaking out. And and, and the mayor, actually, in, in Highland Park said that she had known um, the suspect, Cremo, since he was a little boy and um, that had been part of his Boy Scout troop at some point. His father is generally well known in the area. He owns a restaurant. And so I think for some people, although it was maybe I think it was still pretty shocking. It was in, in especially in that in that uh, community up north. So Zach Weber from WBBM in Chicago. Zach, thanks. Right now, WNBA star Brittany Griner is still in custody in Russia as her trial will continue later this week. She's accused of possessing cannabis oil that was found in her airport luggage back in February. Now, she just wrote a letter to President Biden asking him not to forget about her and other overseas American detainees. Miatek Botashinsky is a professor of U.S. foreign policy at Pomona College and a former State Department diplomat in Albania, uh, Albania and Kosovo. Thank you so much for joining us. So uh, where do we stand with this? Are, are, is Russia holding on uh, to her strictly because of what's uh, our opposition, what they're doing in Ukraine, or are they hoping maybe for one of these uh, old-fashioned uh, prisoner swaps that uh, we used to do in the Cold War? 
Hi, thanks for having me on. I think I think a little bit of both. I think you know we're obviously relations are at a probably lowest they've ever been since since the dark days of the Cold War. And so I think anything they can do that upsets us, um, you know, they see as a as a gain. But yes, I think that that they're also hoping um, for some sort of deal. And how would that work and what would it look like? I mean, who do we have to give up to get her back? And, and does it factor in that she's famous and there's all this attention and she's a big star there and a star here? Um, so you would have to up whatever you give in exchange? Yeah, let me answer the the second question first. I think that, you know, the the more the, the Russians understand how important, you know, if they, they feel how important any potential, any any particular hostage uh, is to us, right? I'm using the word hostage. Uh, I think that's the word that the State Department has used. Um, and and the more important they are to us, the the bigger concession or the bigger, you know, uh, payment, so to say, uh, they think they can get. And so, you know, I understand why uh, Ms. Greiner's family is going to the media and, and her letter to President Biden, all that makes sense. It's a desperate situation, but but that also, in a way, you know, signaling to the Russians uh, that pressure on President Biden is signaling to the Russians that, that she's more important and therefore, you know, then the price uh, is going up, right? That's one view. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a person that's traded, right? It could also be some other thing. It could be concessions on sanctions. I doubt that President Biden is going to do that. But it could be, for instance, diplomatic property that the that the Obama administration confiscated here in the U.S. So it could be something, um, something uh, that's not a person. And uh, I know that w- there's no way that we can know for sure, uh, because obviously she's not going to be allowed to uh, talk about it. But in your view and with the knowledge that you have, how do you think that the Russians are treating her as she's being detained? I mean, I don't know if I can answer a question about the particular conditions of, of, of detention. We've heard from some, you know, some other uh, uh, detainees about about that a bit. I think they have to be somewhat cautious uh you know not to treat her too too badly less less that that uh you know um leads us to 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 treat you know people that that there are people that were were uh were holding the same way or or to or to you know retaliate in some other way um but i can say that the russian federation is a country that where there is no rule of law, where there are, where there are, you know, everything is up to the whims of, of Putin and, and, and his power structure and his secret police and so on. So I can, I can say with, with great certainty that, that there's no way that she's going to get a, a fair trial. Well, I mean, yeah, look at the, the the charges at the outset, right? So they say we found cannabis oil, and uh, if they did or if they didn't, who knows? But instead of just saying, hey, we found this in there, and you're not supposed to have it, and here's whatever fine or penalty, they say, you're a drug smuggler now. Well, okay, no, you're not. <laughs> she's bringing some, sure. some yeah. hash oil in or out, and maybe she's not supposed to, but, uh, you know, this is how far they go in the charging scheme. Yeah, it's it's part of the Russian playbook and and has been for a very long time. And and of course, Russian citizens were the first, you know, various you know dissident journalists and and others who ran afoul of the Putin regime were the the first ones uh, to suffer from it. Miatek Bodashinsky, professor of U.S. foreign policy, Pomona College. Russia declares victory in one part of Ukraine. It says it now has full control over one of the two provinces in the Donbass region, eastern Ukraine. It wasn't without uh, losses, though. The question now is, can Russia put together a strong enough offensive to make more gains? 
Journalist Phil Idner is back with us uh, from Ukraine. He is in Kiev now. Phil, thanks for coming back on the show. So we're again at this point where all the analysts are looking and going, well, who's just going to wear down who first? And uh, that could take weeks. It could take months. Uh, this could be a war that lasts years. Yeah, I mean, potentially it could. Uh, but I don't think it's going quite the way the Russians had anticipated. We clearly see that they've they've adjusted their battle plan from uh, you know taking much more territory now back to falling back on taking just the Donbass and the land bridge that will connect them to uh, uh, Crimea and their naval bases there. Uh, but you know uh, it it certainly does look as though um, uh, they're making uh, progress. The Russians are on the other side of the river, uh, but the Ukrainians are saying that these are planned uh, retreats, that they are slowing the enemy as much as they possibly can and making them pay for every kilometer, every mile that they take. You know, it's kind of interesting because a lot of uh, experts are saying that uh, Russia is uh, militarily is depleted right now. So if they get control of these regions, they've got to maintain that control. And that takes resources that they are, you know, really struggling to, to contain. In the meantime, Ukraine's getting a lot of help from uh, the world outside. It's getting more weapons and uh, systems sent to it. It's getting money, getting infusions of cash and uh, supplies and things like that. Whereas Russia really is not. Uh, so is it possible that Russia takes control of this region, does everything it can to hold on to it, and then sues for peace? And if they do that, I don't think Ukraine is going to agree. So then where do we go from there? I, I think that's a fair estimation of, of, of one scenario, a very probable scenario that's been laid out. Um, and I, I agree with you. I don't know if the Ukrainians will allow the Russians to simply sue for peace because Taking the territory is one thing. Holding on to it is a complete other. And uh, we're not hearing a lot of news coming out of Russian-occupied Ukraine. But what we do hear is that uh, is that the Ukrainians maintain civil disobedience. They uh, they're they're making sure that security forces are needed uh, to occupy those those places. Not you know they can't just take it and then continue on to the next uh the next objective because there are disruptive uh forces uh within ukraine itself it's not going to simply lie down and allow itself to be occupied so um you know they're going to have to exert money they're going to have to exert uh, uh capability military capability to maintain that territory and as you say all the while that russia is expending its uh, military capabilities, whether that's you know in in occupying territories or whether or not that's on the front lines, uh, they're de- you know, they're being depleted uh, all the while that Ukraine is being resupplied from the West. Where are we with with manpower though? Is that still very hard to determine on on yeah. both sides? I mean, Ukraine claims high casualties for Russia. There probably have been very high casualties, but are we clear on on Ukraine's losses even? Um, you know, every every side of uh, of a war is going to try and control that kind of information as best as possible. But you know, clearly, Ukraine is taking a major toll. Uh, they're losing soldiers, uh, admittedly, even from the president's office. That you know, the, the, they float around the two hundred uh, men a day taken off the line, and you know, Russia potentially has about three times the population. 
that they can draw upon if they were to call up a, a mass mobilization than Ukraine does. But the difference is, in a lot of ways, the fact that the the Ukrainians maintain a very high morale. They, they maintain uh, uh, a lot of well-trained uh, uh, soldiers that, that are using this technology as best as they possibly can, these new weapons that they're getting. And the, the Russians, uh, we are also aware on their side of the equation, are having morale problems. They're having uh, problems in terms of, of getting soldiers, um, and they they still are uh, trying to keep the cost in terms of, of, of human casualties away from the major population centers, so St. Petersburg or Moscow, in a way to try and keep the average Russian away from the true costs of, of losing their population, uh, either killed in action or wounded in action. So another circumstance where the, the Ukrainians have a capability they can draw upon the Russians are only de- being diminished on. Journalist Phil Hidner from Kiev in Ukraine. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Rob Archer. COVID cases in California in L.A. County remain stubbornly high. Two-thirds of the counties in the state now considered in the high COVID um, community level for transmission. L.A. County moving closer to the metrics that would lead health officials to reinstate that indoor mask mandate as two new Omicron sub-variants are spreading quickly. Dr. Jeffrey Klausner is an epidemiologist and clinical professor of preventive medicine at USC Keck School of Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us. So with these new uh, subvariants hanging around, uh, I, I, I will say that, uh, you know, uh, a few weeks ago, I had my own run-in with, uh, with COVID, and I don't know which subvariant I have, but I assume it's one that didn't like me very much. Uh, so are, if you get infected with COVID nowadays, is it likely the more chance it's going to be one of these subvariants? Yeah, hi. So increasingly, we are seeing more and more proportion of cases being the subvariant uh, BA4 and BA5. And um, unfortunately, vaccination or recovery from infection does not prevent getting infected. So like your experience, you can get infected and have uh, symptoms for uh, several days. But the good thing is that the vaccines and or recovery from infection still prevent serious illness. And there's different parts of the immune system that protect you against getting infected versus getting seriously ill. Where are we on the reinfection front? How long from your you know previous bout with COVID, and if it was one of these other Omicrons even, can you get this again? Because we were talking last week about how, you know, it, the line went around a, a bunch for a couple of weeks. I know more people with COVID right now than I've, I've known at any other point during the pandemic, and that slowly changed you. I know more people who have gotten it again than I ever knew before. Sure. And, you know, as these variants change and as the spike protein changes what it looks like, uh, a new variant develops and people can get uh, uh, reinfected. But, you know, the the waves of hospitalizations are, um, the peaks are down. So, you know, this is essentially our fifth wave now, our fifth wave of a slight increase in hospitalizations. And the peaks of those hospitalizations are much lower. So while people can get reinfected, their risk of serious illness is indeed lower, and that's due to the immunity from uh, vaccination or immunity from recovery from infection. Unfortunately, though, that immunity does not protect people against getting it more than once. 
Yeah, I was going to say with the reinfection uh, thing, if you get uh, COVID uh, once, you get over it, and then uh, sometime later you get reinfected with it. Is the reinfection expected to be milder than the first infection, or could it be worse? Uh, that's, that's an important question. Could it be worse? So, you know, there was a report that came out about uh, a week, week and a half ago, which uh, from the Veterans Administration Hospital suggested that people who got reinfected uh, did worse, uh, which that's, you know, contrary to kind of, you know, clinical medicine when um, historically you got a repeat infection and it was uh, milder. So uh, the study had some flaws in it. We don't know exactly if people uh, can get a a worse infection. As, as an infectious disease specialist, I would not expect people to have a, a worse time with a repeat infection. When they are tailoring the shots for the fall, whatever they're probably going to give us, this uh, Omicron shot or maybe bundled with something else, how up to date is it going to be? Because if BA4 and BA5, if those are the numbers we're now on to, have come around in the last couple months, are those going to be in there? I mean, do they have time? Yeah, that, that's a, another good question. So, I mean, the idea is that that this um, new booster will be Omicron related. So it'll be, you know, different from the original, we call the Wuhan strain, the original strain will contain some of the spike protein that we've seen with these Omicron related strains, but whether, you know, we move to pi or rho or sigma to tau, whether we march down the Greek alphabet and we really have different uh, strains that will come in the fall when this vaccine finally gets, you know, studied and safe, that's effective and that gets approved. Um, it, it, it may be too late for Omicron and that's a concern. And that's why really we need vaccines that are, you know, what we call pan variant or across all variants that really protect us uh, from infection with any type of uh, variant. But again, that, you know, the risk of severe illness, unless you're significantly immunocompromised or, you know, elderly or have a lot of comorbid conditions, the risk of severe illness is still very low if you've recovered or been vaccinated. Dr. Jeffrey Klausner, epidemiologist, clinical professor, USC Keck School of Medicine. If you have gone to the movies lately, you might have noticed more people there. Revenue at the box office in North America in June hit nearly $1 billion, $1 billion for the first time with since before the pandemic with a B. It's a sign that maybe things are getting back to normal for Hollywood. Sean Robbins, chief analyst at Box Office Pro. Sean, thanks for being with us. So uh, I guess we can thank Top Gun for a lot of that, huh? Yeah, hey guys, it's great to be back. Top Gun played a big role in this. You know, I kind of look at what Minions did this weekend, and it was a lot of parents and kids going back. But to get people comfortable to take their kids, you had to get a movie out there for adults first, and that's what Maverick really did at the beginning of summer. But, you know, there's another issue, and it's not specifically pandemic-related because we were seeing this trend before the pandemic. More and more movies that were making money are these big, huge, tentpole, CGI-heavy, battle-fest, Marvel superhero, space franchise movies, right? <laughs> I love and, that running list of descriptions. Thank you. I've worked on that all day. Uh, but But we're not getting a lot of what they used to call adult dramas. I, I don't mean, you know, the other adult kind. I mean, the the kind that appeal to adults who want some drama and some story. We don't get most of those movies very much anymore. And maybe the pandemic has made that worse. Is is that a trend that's going to continue to develop? And we'll see those kind of movies just go to streaming? I think we'll, we'll start to see a balancing act because we haven't really had that normal part of this recovery process where those movies could go out into theaters. 
usually those would come out kind of after summer towards the end of the year during award season. And when that happened last year, Omicron hit. And that kind of set off this, this extended version of a, of a concern. I do still think that we'll see some of those movies go to theaters. This year will be a, a testing grounds for that. We'll see some go to streamers. I think that is certainly one of the, you know, kind of one of the areas that we're still seeing some evolution. We have to watch it play out. What are our test cases? I guess, uh, you know, we think of the big movies that have gotten the sales and, and it's, it's Top Gun. And then uh, I guess the Jurassic World movie. And then we had a Doctor Strange in there. But we also had everything everywhere all at once, right? And there was Downton Abbey. Yeah. If those did okay, then then maybe we'll be getting back to normal normal at some point. Yeah, you know, I think especially, I'm glad you mentioned Everything Everywhere All at Once because that's such a quirky indie movie and for it to do so well has been such a great sign for the industry. We need more of those. Uh, I'm looking at something, you know, Jordan Peele's no high profile but still an original movie coming out in a couple of weeks. That'll be one to look at. And then once we get into the fall, there's Amsterdam from uh, the director of Silver Linings Playbook and American Hustle with an all-star cast. It kind of has that, that prestige aura about it that we'll look at. Um, I think movies like that, Don't Worry Darling, Bros, a lot more original content will be hitting after the summer. Uh, it will be less on the franchise side of things for, for September and October. Yeah, I think uh, the word I was looking for was Oscar bait. Where were the Oscar bait movies coming out with the, uh, you know, the really good performances? And this is obviously aiming for an award at the end of the year. Uh, those kind of movies. Um, but uh, what about, let me ask you about, you know, the inflation problems, the economic problems that we're having. And eventually that is it's probably already beginning to affect movie uh, industry, uh, movie makers. Uh, they're having to spend a lot more money to get uh, smaller sets built. And uh, CGI is, you know, not cheap. That's also expensive. Uh, could we see that begin to affect the budget of some of these big budget movies? You know, it's hard to rule out, and that's the side of the, the economy, the economics, I should say, of this. Whereas box office tends to have a negative, or, sorry, a negative correlation with inflation, it actually tends to help attendance at times because going to movies is a little bit more affordable for families than, say, going to the beach for a week and a half. Uh, on the supply side of this, so to speak, yeah, studios are running into higher budgets, and they have been. They've been hit by supply chain issues, and now inflation, that will be something to consider. Uh, and it will probably impact the release slate to some extent going into next year. But so far, we haven't really seen a, a major occurrence of that yet. The balance with streaming, where are we with how fast to get them on the platforms? Are, are the theatrical runs shorter and then it's like a quick pause and then on to streaming? And is that length at a length where someone's going to realize that they'll say, oh, I'll just wait for streaming because it's not as long as it used to be. When I used to say I'll wait for video, that seemed like it took a really long time. <laughs> Right. I think the industry is really settling around about a 45-day window for most major films now. And pre-pandemic, that's honestly about where most movies would have earned 85 to 90 percent of their money anyway. Uh, and I think word of mouth is crucially more important now. We, we see something that comes out and draws an audience like Maverick. They want to go see that in the theater. They want to be part of that that community that, that you know they've seen it. They can talk about it with their friends and family immediately. Uh, but conversely, if we see a big movie like that come out and draw poor reception, maybe that is something that's slightly more susceptible to being the so-called wait-for-streaming type of movie. You know, one thing that uh, I think some movie uh, theaters are uh, banking on is that the IMAX uh, factor might help get people into the movie theaters and not wait for streaming. I know that when uh, Doctor Strange came out, I, I hate to say this, and they're going to hate me for saying it, uh, I waited until it came out on streaming because I've got Disney+, Plus, so I was going to wait for it to be there. So I waited to see that there. But on the other hand, Top Gun is a movie that both my wife and I want to go see because we want to see it in IMAX. Could that become a bigger player? 
Yeah, I think that's a great example. And to me, I think premium formats like IMAX, RPX, Dolby, 40X, ScreenX, you name them all, Dynans, that's the future of the industry. Theaters are evolving. They have to continue offering something that people can't get at home. The big screen experience by itself is already that. But some of these smaller auditoriums, maybe something that hasn't been upgraded for over 10 years, that's what we have to start focusing on in the mid to long range. Uh, because really, you know, as better TVs and streaming content are available at home, you have to you have to keep up with that demand, and I think they will over time, but it will take some 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 process to get there. Is is this Minions movie actually good, or did the parents just need something to take the kids to? It's been so long <laughs> since they went to the theaters. They're like, oh, more Minions are here. Come on, pile in the car, let's go, guys. Yeah, I haven't personally seen it, but I've heard good things. The reviews look pretty good on Rotten Tomatoes, so I think it's a little bit of both. Yeah, pent up demand plus people just want to laugh right now. I mean, it's it's escapism at its finest for all ages. All right, Sean Robbins, Chief Analyst at uh, Box Office Pro. Sean, thanks. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Rob Archer in for Charles Feldman. The R word still creating fear on Wall Street. Stocks falling recently again as investors and others worry about a recession. The numbers that will confirm whether or not we're in an official recession will not be coming out until later this month. But if we are in a recession, will it be that bad? Patrick Gorley is an economics professor at the University of New Haven. Thank you for joining us. So uh, this recession business, are we in one? And there's the question. If we are, is it going to be that bad? So the most commonly used definition for a recession is two consecutive quarters of negative growth. So the the economy right isn't there quite yet. Uh, it might rebound in now that we've entered the third quarter of 2022. So I'm not sure whether or not we're in a recession quite yet, but one certainly looks likely in the next six to 12 months. What are some of the other indicators that you look for past that? Yeah, again, the, the one that everyone generally uses or economists use is just real GDP. And when you have those six months straight of a contraction, that's usually what it's considered uh, a recession, just because even things like the stock market and inflation, those aren't actual, don't really have to do with the size of the actual economy, right? The stock market can go way down, it can go way up. And that doesn't really mean that the total value that the economy is producing is changing. So you really need to look at that GDP, gross domestic product, to say whether or not a recession is occurring. Now, what what specifically pushes us into a recession? Like we're dealing with inflation right now, and uh, basically there's uh, more demand, uh, more dollars chasing fewer goods. Uh, and uh, what could happen is that things will get so expensive that people will then stop buying. But is that what pushes us uh, into a recession? Or what are the other factors leading into that? So generally, inflation doesn't cause a recession because it's to some extent zero sum. Everyone says, well, gas is getting more expensive. That's bad. But at the same time, if you're paying more for gas, that means someone else is getting more for gas. Same with restaurant meals or anything else. You're paying more, but whoever's producing the good is getting more money. Uh, the unfortunate thing is that interest rates to, are going to have to go up to bring down inflation because inflation can cause other problems. And when in interest rates rise, that then can cause a recession pretty easily. That's certainly not the only cause, but we saw something similar to this in the late 70s, early 80s, where inflation was persistently high around the 8 10% that we see today. And the Federal Reserve actually deliberately caused a recession in the early 1980s to get rid of that inflation. They were successful. We haven't had high inflation since then. But it did cause, uh, you know, a pretty significant recession in the early 80s. Confidence level in what this Fed is doing. There, there was talk about, you know what, we might be able to pull off like a soft 
landing and, and get out of this. Now that's kind of changed to soft-ish. The ish is on there. Yeah, I think I love the phrase soft landing. It's certainly possible, but I liken it to you're walking a tightrope blindfolded and the tightrope is constantly changing. Uh, <laughs> Things right, are going we've great. We've never been in a situation <laughs> like this before. The U.S. economy, the government pumped $5 trillion worth of stimulus into the U.S. economy. We're not even off the map doesn't even begin to state how different this is than any other economic situation. Is there a possibility that things could uh, even out and we won't have to deal with a recession? Because you know, a lot of this was is pandem- uh, pandemic-related, it seems to me. And, uh, and then we had the supply chain issues because of the pandemic. And then when demand picked up, supply chain hadn't been able to uh, catch up yet. Uh, could things resolve themselves if we keep coming out of this pandemic and, and maybe the uh, interest rates slow down demand just enough? It's definitely possible. It's just like I said, you're, you're looking at a really small target there because if the interest rates don't go high enough, you're going to have persistent inflation, which consumers don't like for obvious reasons. And if they raise interest rates too high, that causes a recession. So to really hit that sweet spot, again, when we have no, no history to look back on, is going to be really tough. It's certainly possible, but unlikely. What do we know about how consumers are, are feeling about what's going on there? There was all that polling saying, you know, and there was all the evidence that people were just spending no matter what because they had things to buy and they wanted to get out there and they wanted to go on trips and do all this stuff. Is that starting with all the news and uh, what the stock market's doing? Is that starting to wane a little bit? People going, you know what, I'm not planning for next spring right now because I don't know what's going to happen. I haven't seen any hard numbers looking into the future. I do know, and this is definitely concerned for the Fed that expectations for future inflation are increasing. And so inflation can be a self-fulfilling prophecy where if everyone thinks, oh, inflation is going to continue to go up over the next year, they're going to pay higher prices, they're going to demand higher wages, and you're going to continue with that inflationary spiral. So as those lock in, every month that inflation stays high, it's going to get harder and harder to prevent it because then the expectations are it will stay high. So I think the Fed definitely waited too long to act, but if they hopefully now with these rate increases, there's a big one a month ago, there's probably another big one this month, uh, hopefully that will kind of get people to say, okay, actually maybe the inflation won't last, and that would make it easier to have a, a soft landing. Patrick Gorley, economics professor, University of New Haven. The Earth is old, like a few billions of years old, so a lot of events have happened long before our time. About 250 million years ago, there was an event that they called the Great Dying. Which is exactly like it sounds. Most of the things on this planet went extinct, like 95% in the ocean, 70% on land. And there's new research out on the uh, Great Dying that points to very rapid global warming. that basically kind of turned into a vicious cycle. Uh, we're with uh, David Botcher now, paleoecologist at uh, USC. Uh, thanks for being with us. So there's researchers in Ireland that have a new study out. You've also taken a look back at the Great Dying. And there's articles floating around today and people are wondering, well, they had climate change and global warming then, although at a more rapid pace for various reasons. But we have it now. So are we on the cusp of something else happening that could be akin to what we saw that long ago? Well, yeah, I think that's a, a pretty good uh, conclusion to make. Uh, the, the Earth has kind of run these experiments before in the past, as you have described with the, the uh, great dying, where uh, due to natural processes, uh, we've had a gr- really big increase in temperature. And so, so uh, we as uh, paleontologists and paleontologists can, can study that. And we see that uh, you know, increased temperature leads to increased wildfires, this sort of thing. 
um, which, uh, if, you know, as Californians, we've kind of started to see that happening, right? Uh, except this time, uh, where it was a natural process before, I think a lot of it is uh, uh, contributed by human beings putting a lot of uh, carbon dioxide into the air, uh, especially since the Industrial Revolution. So are we making this, uh, this if there is going to be an event like that, are we making it happen faster? Yeah, you know, it, what's really interesting is this, this great dying was caused by a really increased amount of eruptions of volcanoes and the magma that came up through the ground passed through a lot of coal beds and burned a lot of coal and that put a lot of CO2 into the atmosphere. And it's almost, you know, eerily equivalent to our, you know, the large number of coal-fired power plants that we've had putting a lot of CO2 into the atmosphere. The big difference is, is that, as you just mentioned, it's going at a lot faster rate than it was during the Great Dying. Now we're, you know, so we're doing the coal part now. Uh, let's talk about the fire part, because is that also one of the key issues? Wildfire, natural part of the ecosystem. But if you have too many and you start wiping out forests, then um, there goes a lot of your, your carbon capture. Exactly. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, you're not only wiping out forests, but you're also wiping out all the animals that we like to go see in the forest, you know. That, and so it's a, a major effect upon ecosystems on land. And it seems as if we're on this increasing trend of that. Maybe uh, we're at the beginning of a similar kind of mass extinction phenomenon. You know, we hear a lot of experts say that we have to really start fighting uh, climate change now and doing everything we can. And there are some in the middle who say, well, we need to start fighting and doing everything we can. But all we can do right now is slow it down and give us a few hundred years to maybe find a way to catch up. And then there are still others who say, you know what? It's too late. We're done. Uh, we, we passed the tipping point. Where do you stand on that uh, spectrum? Well, you know, I like to try and be optimistic with our, you know, human civilizations and societies that we, we still have the uh, chance to try and slow this down. The, the, you know, the more CO2 we put in the atmosphere, the just the hotter and hotter it's going to get. Uh, the problem with, with this uh, whole process is that it takes the Earth a very long time to sort of reincorporate that CO2 back into the Earth, like hundreds of thousands of years. And so whatever we do now, we're going to be stuck with it. And, and if we keep increasing it, we're just going to be stuck with a hotter and hotter Earth for, you know, uh, the foreseeable future. So, but, um, so I think we should try and see what we can do to uh, slow it down. Uh, you know, uh, people are only uh, really brought to action when there's a big catastrophe. I think that's why wildfires are, are sort of uh, getting our attention because, you know, it's a pretty big catastrophe. And, you know, maybe, uh, maybe this should get us to, to work hard on this. Um, certainly in California, we see that going on. Do you think more people are getting it that this, you know, used to be, oh, it's a coastal city problem or it's an arid place problem. Find more water somewhere, convert seawater, do something like that. But realizing that, no, this is like a world problem, that it's going to have an effect on everything everywhere all at once. We still the line of the movie from that we were talking about in the other segment. But it, it's that thing. It's going to be a, a whole planetary yeah. issue. No one's escaping it. Yeah, we're not going to, you know, you're, there isn't a way you can go hide from this. Uh, and I agree, you know, uh, I, teaching at USC, I, I, I uh, talk to a lot of the undergraduates, and uh, they're all, I think, pretty aware of this. And, and in a way, I'm going to say, I think the younger generation is probably going to be the key to uh, getting us turned around on this. Uh, they, you know, they have a, a much bigger stake, their whole future. <laughs> so, uh, I, as I say, I'm optimistic because of the people and the, and the young people that I interact with.
You know, back in the Great Dying, the uh, the creatures that were around them, they didn't have any technology to uh, help them adapt. They had to adapt through uh, natural means. That takes a lot longer. Are we at a point in our uh, cultural history where we do have technology? Is our technology going to be able to catch us up enough that we, if we can't stop global warming, maybe we can slow it down just enough so that technology can adapt. Uh, is is that a possibility that we might be able to save ourselves, maybe not through stopping global warming, but by finding ways to live with it? Yes. Uh, I mean, clearly, you know, as I mentioned, if we just rely on natural processes, the CO2 we're putting in the atmosphere isn't going anywhere for a very long time, just very slowly. But uh, there are a lot of people that are, are working on technologies that would sort of, again, at a, at, at a human level, uh, start to draw this down uh, or, you know, keep, uh, you know, the amount of uh, sun energy impacting the earth at, at a reduced level so that we would somehow cool things off. So there's there's a lot of work on that. It, it, it is an enormous project because, as you said, it's not just one place. It's the whole earth. We, we as humans have gotten together on this before, you know, with the refrigerants from uh, things, um, you know, the uh, things that were pumped into the air back in the uh, early days of the 70s and 80s, we got an international treaty to uh, stop that. And so, the, and that was what was harming the, um, you know, the ozone layer and uh, letting UV in. So, uh, you know, we can do things, but that was a pretty simple problem compared to the one that we have now. But, but uh, I think if we get our act together, uh, we still have a chance. All right. David Botcher, paleoecologist at USC. That's in-depth for today. We'll be back tomorrow.